where's the best place to buy tires? Where's the best repair shop for my hybrid? Questions about your car? Drive into Dobbs. With more than 40 locations, our team of technicians will get the job done right the first time. For deals you can use, click on gotodobbs.com now. For over two decades, E&B Granite has been St. Louis's trusted name for kitchen, bathroom, and outdoor space renovations that are guaranteed to bring new life into your living spaces. Their skill team will provide you with personalized customer service, fast turnaround times, and prices you won't find with big box stores. Support local and schedule free consultation at enbgranite.com or call them at 314-645-9300 or better yet, stop by the showroom and explore their massive inventory. Again, that's enbgranite.com. This is a Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. Good morning. Good Friday morning. Happy Mother's Day weekend. It is Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Michelle Smallman, Randy Carriker, Freeze Pops is here. Colin Surrey is here. And we are ready to take you through your Friday morning. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Randy. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. We've made it through a week. <laughs> Well, the show's not over yet, Randy. Let's but I haven't, I, I haven't slept in. I haven't been late. Any, not one day out of five. That's true. Congratulations Thank to both you. of us, honestly. Yeah. We're kind of on a roll here. Has there been a day when the alarm went off and you cringed a little bit? I have not gotten up to an alarm yet. I have woken up before the alarm every single day. Wow. Yeah. What is that, just mental fortitude? Are you telling yourself? No, I think that's mental nervousness. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm waking up at one and two and three. Me too. Same yeah. thing. Like a light or, or like a lightning <laughs> bolt in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and I'll panic and I'll search for my phone and I'll look and it'll be 3.30 in the morning. It's, it's a terrible feeling. It really is. We got great a great show coming up for you. Our friend John O'Leary, a great author, uh, who was a great friend of the late great Jack Buck, is going to join us at seven thirty. Coming up at eight fifteen, Joy Vitale will join us for his weekly visit in the Blues booth, and then at nine thirty, Dan Schulman of ESPN. A longtime friend. Back when sports radio was getting started in the 80s, Dan had a show in Toronto, and I was kind of like their St. Louis correspondent. So it's always great to talk to Dan Schulman. This industry seems very big. It's actually very, very small. A lot of people's yep. paths intercross or intersect at some point in their career, and they go on to do other things. So it's basically a big web here in sports talk media. It's amazing. Speaking of a web, it appears as if the Kansas basketball program might be ensnared in one. The NCAA issued a uh, list of sanctions against Kansas, and Kansas came out with uh, their response, and now the NCAA has responded to that. And the first word of the NCAA's response is, there can be no doubt the men's basketball allegations are egregious, severe, and are the kind that significantly undermine and threaten the NCAA collegiate model. The institution, in taking its defiant posture in this case, is indifferent to how its alleged violations may have adversely impacted other NCAA institutions who acted in compliance with NCAA legislation. It would appear here, Michelle, that the NCAA might be out to get Bill Self and the KU basketball program. Is it surprising to you that they seem to be so emphatic in the fact that they are calling out Bill Self, calling out Kansas and going after them, considering they're what we like to call an earner? Everything, yeah, well, that part of it is... It would be surprising if everything weren't available from a court case that directly implicated Self and one of his assistants, Curtis Townsend. They are an earner. There's no doubt about it. And they're, uh, and we'll talk about this later, they are being the anti-Mizzou and being real obstructionists against the NCAA. 
uh, the school has previously stated that any accusations of wrongdoing in this case against self are based on, quote, misguided, unprecedented and meritless interpretation and application of NCAA booster and recruiting legislation. They're going deep into the nuance here. KU is at odds with the NCAA over the definition of a booster and how such a broad definition could apply in this case. The schools fought against the notion that Adidas employees and Adidas was paying players and their parents to to commit to KU. And KU is fighting against the notion that Adidas employees would have been boosters when they simply made payments to the parents and guardians of players to help facilitate recruitment in Kansas' favor. So what they're saying is, hey, the Adidas guys aren't boosters. They're just buddies. And they're, they're helping us out a little bit. Yeah, you're talking about a, a different phrasing here. We, we interpreted it differently. But I didn't expect Kansas to go any other route, did you? I in no way expected them to take the Mizzou route and say, hey, we are going to self-report. Here is what happened. We are going to do anything we can to cooperate with you in hopes that you'll take it easy on us, especially after they saw that the NCAA did not do Mizzou any favors for taking that approach. So I I in no way am surprised that Kansas is saying, hey, I don't know what you're talking about here. Every school from now on, and it's it's not just Mizzou, it's North Carolina. And North Carolina, I believe, had more egregious crimes against NCAA rules than Mizzou did. And North Carolina got off with nothing. Mississippi State did the exact same thing. They had the exact same thing happen that Mizzou happened. And Mizzou was hit harder, even though they cooperated with the NCAA. And Mississippi State wouldn't even allow their administrators to meet with the NCAA. So every school should take the approach now of saying, yeah, we don't agree with this and we aren't really going to cooperate with you, NCAA. You do it on your own. Cooperation should be out the window for every single school that's accused of anything by the NCAA. I agree. And unfortunately, I think Mizzou, either way, either approach they would have taken might have been a sacrificial lamb because of the UN season, because of what could potentially happen with Kansas because they're earners. It's easy for the NCAA to look at a Missouri program and take it hard on them and then put that on their resume and say, look, we we do hold schools to task. Look at what we did with Missouri, even though we know what happened with UNC. And Mm -hmm. I have no faith that the NCAA is going to really go after Bill Self and continue to push this. I think if Kansas draws their line in the sand, they and it seems like, speaking of sacrificial lambs, that they're throwing the football program out to the wolves. They sure are. They agree with everything there. <laughs> yeah, they're like, yep, we everything you're saying about the football program is correct, but the basketball program, I don't think so. So it seems like the NCAA can look at this situation and say, Bill Self, Kansas, especially with the uncertainty in sports right now, they are a program, and honestly, the state of college basketball, they're a program that people care about that they'll tune in to watch. So maybe we can go ahead and and take the sacrifice in the football program and figure out something here with the basketball program. It just seems to me that the language is harsh. This seems like pretty contentious language on the part of the NCAA to use the words egregious and severe and say they significantly undermine and threaten the NCAA collegiate model. There's nothing soft about what the NCAA wrote here. I was always told, Randy, that actions speak louder than words, Mm -hmm. and they can write whatever they want. And yes, on paper, that seems to be pretty, pretty fierce. It seems like they're fed up in a way when you're reading it saying and and I think a lot of this has to do with legal documents because if they didn't come out and say this there would be a lot more questions aimed at the NCAA because of what's happening in in the court case. But 
when I look at UNC and I look at the way that that went down, I am preconditioned to think that the NCAA is going to want to protect a program, especially a basketball program, mm-hmm. that benefits them. One thing I want to hear from especially intense Mizzou fans is, are you rooting for Kansas or the NCAA here? Ooh, that's a great Great question. <laughs> it's hard to root for KU, but if I'm a Mizzou fan, I'm a Mizzou fan, but I'm not a grad. I'm, I'm not emotionally invested in hating Kansas. Yeah. But I'm rooting for Kansas against the NCAA. That's got to be a really tough pill for a Mizzou fan to swallow. So 65780, that's our Air Comfort Service text line. You can leave us a mic uh, drop with the Rhino Shield mic drop and use the 101 ESPN app, which is free. You can download that, baby. And we'd love <laughs> to hear from you, especially Mizzou grads and uh, intense Mizzou fans. Who are you rooting for in this one, KU or the NCAA? Meanwhile, last night, the NFL released their schedule. How a schedule release became a thing, I don't know. But it is. On two networks, they spend three hours talking about the release of a schedule, and people are really into it. Now, the opener of the season, as it traditionally is, is the Super Bowl champions. This year, the Kansas City Chiefs. And last year in the playoffs, they came back from a monster first quarter deficit, 21-0, and they hammered the Houston Texans. Since then, the Houston Texans have traded their best player, DeAndre Hopkins, and as you might expect, Chiefs coach Andy Reid is ready to get going with Houston. Listen, O'Brien's done a great job there. They've got a heck of a football team, and and we respect the heck out of them. Uh, we didn't play very well to start that game, I and mean, we've got to do a better job the next time of starting faster. But I, I was proud of the guys for hanging in there. I didn't see anybody drop their heads and you know hang their heads and, and so on. They everybody kept the positive attitude, and we we're able to turn it around. He's the only guy in America saying O'Brien's done a heck of a job there. <laughs> I was going to say how kind of him. But it's easy for you to do that after you won, is to throw right. that kindness to him. He's probably saying, yeah, you did a heck of a job. We won the game. <laughs> so Kansas City will have uh, that opener. The Patriots will have the hardest schedule, the Patriots without Tom Brady. And Michelle, the Ravens, who last year went 14-2, and two, have at least, based on last year's records, the easiest schedule this year. How upset do you think that Bill Belichick is that he got the hardest schedule without Tom Brady and he's looking at the road that he has to take knowing that everyone's going to be talking about how this affects his potential, not his legacy, but uh, certainly the conversation surrounding him and his relationship with Brady in regards to their success. He's got a new quarterback and you're going to give me the toughest schedule? Yeah, come on. And interestingly, the Patriots have five primetime games and they expect Belichick's team to get better as they go along because four of their primetime games are after the halfway point of the season. That's interesting because I wonder how many people are going to be interested in watching the certainly early on. You're going you're in a primetime game, you're going to want to see what the Patriots look like, what Stidham looks like. I wonder how many people across the country are actually going to be that locked into Patriots games as the season goes on if they're mediocre without the the star factor of Tom Brady. I think after the opener after you get a, a glimpse of Jarrett Stidham, it probably falls off a little bit. I know you're particularly excited about the first Sunday night game. Oh, are you talking about September 13th, Randy? Yes, I am. Yes. Well, this was certainly one that a lot of people had circled on the calendar. (laughs) So the Rams, despite an international health crisis, despite the fact that a lot of people are putting projects on hold because of the risk of, you know, 
putting their employees in a bad spot to potentially get sick. The Rams are charging ahead with the construction on their new stadium, and it intends to open here in the summer in 2020. I believe, Randy, you said that they still still in some world think that they're going to have a Kenny Chesney concert in August. On August 1st. Yeah, Taylor Swift was supposed to open it in late July. She canceled canceled her entire tour. So now they're saying Kenny Chesney. Yeah, I don't know how they can rationalize to themselves that that's going to happen when the mayor of L.A. is saying that they're not going to have fans in stadiums probably until 2021. But I digress. Uh, One of the games that a lot of people were talking about is the fact that to open that new stadium, the Rams are going to be facing, I don't even want to say they're a foe or an opponent because it's really a friend in the Dallas Cowboys because they wouldn't even be in L.A. They wouldn't be in that stadium if it weren't for Jerry Jones and the Cowboys. And he says it's an honor to help the Rams christen their new home. For me personally, uh, I was born right there in Englewood where the stadium's uh, location is. And uh, I have such uh, really great respect for what Stan Kroenke and what those uh, Rams have done to shoulder the building of that stadium. It's uh, uh, going to tell the world and the uh, entertainment capital of the world uh, what the NFL can be. And so it's going to be not only great for the Rams and for the Chargers, but it's going to be fabulous for the NFL. And it's a privilege to uh, bring those Cowboys in there and play those Rams to start that thing off. I want to get your response to that, Randy, but doesn't it sound like a workout DVD music in the background? (laughs) I'm like, are we doing aerobics back there? What's going on? Yeah. So, yeah, we want to have those Cowboys play those Rams. And the Cowboys, But it's uh, according to ESPN, the second hottest ticket after the schedule was released last night, the second hottest ticket of all tickets in the NFL. And... I would think that it'll be filled with Cowboys fans because that's the way it works in L.A. Even the L.A. people are Cowboys fans because they didn't decide just to not become Cowboy fans anymore because the Rams moved there. So I can see why Jerry would be excited about it. This is all win-win for Jerry Jones. Which confuses me, and I I don't know how— and. I do know how because the NFL is corrupt. But you would think if you were another owner in the NFL that you would be looking at the stadium situation and you would say, how is it not a conflict of interest to have Jerry Jones have such a big hand in building this stadium when it's not affecting his team? His company, co-owned by the Cowboys and the Yankees legends, was placed in charge of selling PSLs for the new stadium and in charge of concessions at SoFi Stadium. So Jerry Jones gets a cut of every single dollar made at SoFi Stadium. How that was allowed to happen is beyond me, but it certainly didn't work well in the interests of St. Louis. No, it didn't. When when Jerry Jones in that clip we just heard says he has great respect for Stan Kroenke for what he's built in L.A. Of course you do. You puppeteered <laughs> this entire thing and you didn't really have to do that much work and you're getting a massive, massive profit out of it. Of course you respect him and what he's done. Yep. We've got more coming up. I want to get to some texts. One uh, from the 636, death to Kansas. <laughs> Another one from the 636, all I want out of the NCAA is fairness. Kansas basketball deserves the hammer. Uh, another one from the 314, and we appreciate this. Michelle and Randy, you guys make an awesome team. Very happy to listen to both of you in this situation. I'm rooting more against Kansas, but all the same, I wish only for the demise of both Kansas and the NCAA. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, good morning, Randy and Michelle. Hi. In all good conscience, uh, I could never side with the Kansas Jayhawks on anything. They should be slapped and slapped hard <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, good morning. <laughs> Thanks for your text to the Air Comfort Service text line, 65780. Next up, as we've talked about over the last several days, it looks like baseball is gearing up, and specifically the Cardinals getting ready for spring training 2.0. We'll tell you what's happening with that next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. <laughs> Michelle and Randy with you on 101 ESPN. A great piece by Derek Gould at stltoday.com detailing what the Cardinals are planning for. And obviously there are multiple ideas as to what they might do, but a couple of their ideas for what would be a 17-day camp would be having camp either in St. Louis or in Jupiter. And John Mozalek said to Derek Gould, we have to plan for both possibilities. We don't know when Camp 2.0 will be, but we have to think about what it would look like in both places. And I would think, Michelle, at this stage, because of the pandemic, the most sensible move for every team would be to be in a more controlled environment. And frankly, an easier environment. It'd be easier for the Cardinals just to work by themselves at Bush Stadium mm-hmm. than to have another team on the other side of their complex in the Miami Marlins. So it seems like the I, and the weather is good now for everybody, that everybody could work at their home facility. And, you know, one of the things that people are very concerned about is limiting travel. And a lot of these people already have homes here in St. Louis. They're already sheltering in place here in St. Louis. And so it doesn't then make them have to go to Florida. You're having to worry about logistics there. When I hear, or when I read John Mozeliak's comments, have you ever seen Homeland, Randy? Mm-hmm. Claire Danes? Yeah. I'm picturing him in a room with just everything <laughs> taped to the wall, all these different scenarios, trying to figure out what to do and, and what the best possible thing is. But to read John Mozeliak say to Derek Gould that there's an urgency in the plans that teams are putting together made me kind of take a deep breath and say, okay, this is going to happen. Because Mo, you kind of have to read the tea leaves sometimes with some of the things he says. But if he's saying there's an urgency, that means that, hey, this is going to get done and we are going to play baseball this season. When asked if the Cardinals had an idea on the minimum length of a second spring training, Mo told Derek Gould there wasn't a precise settled time. And once again, that idea of a 17-day camp has come up. One of the things Derek points out, and this is a good point, a possible drawback to Camp 2.0 in St. Louis is that it could eliminate the Cardinals' ability to play exhibition games, meaning players would go from scrimmages and live BPs into a game that counts in a modified regular season. But in reality, there's only three franchises that could, in a scenario where you Mm -hmm. train at home, play real spring training games. It would be the Yankees, the Yankees, Mets, Cubs, White Sox, and well, I guess there's four Angels, eight, uh, Dodgers, and then the A's and the Giants. So you'd have eight teams that would have the possibility of doing that. But in California, as we talked to Tony Larusa the other day, yep. it's tough getting around right now. Right. And I know that a lot of teams are looking at that saying, hey, we'd like to get a little bit more warmed up before we jump into games that have real consequences, wins and losses. But hey, this is a, a new look. This is something that everyone's going to have to adjust to. And the fact that the players did get spring training action, I know that there was a break in between, but you've kind of gotten a little bit of a taste of what they can do and, and whatnot. And these are professional athletes. They know what to do. They know how to get ready, or at least they should know mm-hmm. how, 
what to do and how to get ready. And hopefully the team has been in contact with them. And there there may be kind of a period where everyone seems a little rusty and it takes a while for them to get into a rhythm. But unfortunately, that might just be what has to happen. At VivaAlbertos.com, they have an interesting piece on the way the Cardinals could set up their rotation with three different options. You could have your regular five-starter rotation with bullpen starts because it's going to be hard for starters off the bat to give you what they normally would at the start of a season. You could go with option number two, which is a six-starter rotation with regular rest, or you could go with option three, and that would be a four-starter rotation, and you would have piggybacks. Which one do you prefer, Michelle Smallman? I think, Randy, I'm going to circle option number two, and that is a six-starter rotation with regular rest. You know, we talked about the team being potentially rusty because of the situation at hand and because of an abbreviated you know, spring training 2.0, if you will. So a lot of teams take the beginning part of the season to let their team breathe and to watch things develop. And you're not going to have time to do that. You're going to jump right in. So to me, you have to lean on what you know to be true. And one of the things that we know to be true is that the Cardinals have a strong rotation. They have a strong starting pitching group. And one of the things heading into spring training was there were some guys you had questions about, whether it be Carlos Martinez, KK. Should we use them in the rotation? Should we use them in the bullpen? To me, you have to preserve this rotation as much as you possibly can. And you do that by having a six-man rotation. And why not just get all those guys in a row and see what you've got right out of the gate if they would start spring training on june 10th that'd be three months since they've last seen carlos martinez that'd be my biggest concern is what the heck has he been doing Mm -hmm. in the three months between the the times that you've seen him but if he's in shape and you have flaherty martinez hudson wainwright michaelis and kk that just makes sense. And you can figure out who your best six would be during that first three weeks of the regular season. Just treat the first three weeks of the regular season as an extension of spring training. Mm-hmm. And once you figure out who the best guys are, and I don't know if they'll have minor league baseball, if, they're, if they'll cut rosters down, I would think that they would have 40-man rosters to start the season because of a three-week spring training. Once you figure out who your best five are, then you put that sixth guy down in the bullpen. Yeah, and I would love to see KK get a look. I know that we generally had the notion that he would be in the bullpen to start the season, but the Cardinals seem to be really good at identifying that international talent. I remember when Miles Michaelis came in and everyone was saying, who is this guy? You know, he ate a lizard. We don't know what the, <laughs> who he is. And then he had that strong, strong start. So I would be really interested to see what they saw in him and let him get a shot. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And this is Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Our friend John O'Leary has a new book out. It's called In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. And... Much of John's thought process was formed by the late, great Jack Buck. And John O'Leary will join us next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. With Michelle, I'm Randy. Great to have you with us on 101 ESPN. And one of my favorite guests is the highly inspirational and motivational John O'Leary. He is an accomplished speaker and author and has a new book out called In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder and Unleash Your Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. John O'Leary, it's great to have you with us in the morning here on 101 ESPN. How are you doing? Hey, Brandy. Hi, Michelle. Good morning to you both. Good morning, John. And just for our audience who might not be familiar with you or your story, can you share with us how you came to know Jack Buck and become such special friends with him? Sure. I grew up in the Midwest, which means Jack Buck tucks me into bed every single night of my childhood. (laughs) 
it's a weird relationship. I think the majority of us young boys had it with Jack Buck, and the majority of us older people had it with Jack Buck because he was the voice of our summers. He was the, the soundtrack of what got us through those hot summer days. And uh, I became even closer with Jack, though, at age nine when I was burned on 100% of my body, brought into St. John's Mercy, given no chance of surviving. And that, that's on January 17th. On January 18th, it's a Sunday morning. I find myself in this hospital bed. I'm tied down. I can't move. I'm, I'm strapped down to the bed, arms and legs. There's a respirator, so I can't breathe on my own or speak or eat or drink. And my eyes are swollen shut, so I can't, I can't see, which means the only things I can do, I can dream, I can pray, and I can listen. I can listen. And that's key because that morning the door opens up, footsteps walk in, a chair comes across the floor, and then we hear the unmistakable and unforgettable voice of Jack Buck say, Kid, wake up. Wake up. You are going to live. You are going to survive. And when, not if, when you get out of here, we are going to celebrate. We'll call it John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. And then he goes, kid, are you even listening? And I remember as a nine-year-old trying to nod my head, Michelle, and, and you know, <laughs> then he goes, good, keep fighting. And that's my one experience with Jack Buck. He walks out of that room. He's told by the staff that the boy is going to die. There's absolutely no chance. There's no reason for hope. So that's the end of the story, supposedly. Except for the fact that the following day, Jack Buck comes back into this room again sits down next to me into my darkness. He brings the light and says, kid, wake up. I'm back. And it begins this wildly unlikely relationship between a nine-year-old nobody named John O'Leary and this distinguished, beautiful announcer named Jack Buck. And that precipitated the book uh, On Fire, your first book. And that really so vividly describes the story and the wonderful relationship and how that day and those days that Jack kept visiting you formed your your outlook on life. What was the genesis for this book, John? So the first book, Randy, is about what happened to me as a boy and what I learned through that experience. This book called In Awe is about what, I, what I'm seeing today as an adult. And as a speaker, I travel around the world delivering keynote addresses to organizations. And I, I love my work, and I miss being uh, on the road. I miss being in front of conferences, to be honest with you. But I see a lot of brokenness out there. Man, I see a lot of adults walking into these conference rooms with their shoulders slumped. That's before the day even begins. I think we kind of endure the mundane. We get through the days barely. We wait for the next season. Not a whole lot of us are living super present in the one we currently have. And then after I leave the big events, I always love to visit kids. I learned that from an old friend of mine. So I love to visit kids, whether they're in hospitals or they're uh, in school buildings. And when I walk into the room with a child, I see something I don't see as frequently with adults. Uh, there's less cynicism. Let's start with that. But there's a lot more joy. They have these big, goofy grins plastered on their face. When I ask them questions in a classroom, every single one of these little kids raise their hands, usually before I'm even done asking the question. They are highly engaged, highly optimistic, highly joyful in life. And so I, I see this again and again and again playing out around me, but also in my own family. So I wondered, what is it that kids have that we have lost? And if we return to it, what might happen? 
John O'Leary was in the hospital as a nine-year-old for five months. Before he passed away, Jack Buck was in the hospital for five months. And you and I have a, a similar story here. Tell us uh, when Jack was in the hospital, what your thought process was in not visiting him. Randy, I mean, it's, it's one of the most embarrassing things to talk about, and it breaks my heart every time it's asked and every time I have to answer it because Jack Buck, you know, we're giving everybody the high-level story here, but they're missing the, the meat. I mean, J- Jack was a profound influence in my life, and here he is in the hospital for the final five months of his life, and he's got Parkinson's disease on top of it all, which is the exact same disease my dad has. So I understand a lot of the pain that Jack is going through. And you would think as a listener right now that, that I bet John O'Leary was outside that room every day keeping vigil for 20, you know, 24 hours a day. And the reality is not once did I go down to visit my friend Jack Buck. And it's not because I'm selfish, although maybe I am. It's not because I'm too busy because I certainly wasn't. The reason I never visited Jack Buck is because I never felt worthy ever of the joy, of the love, of the gifts that he provided me. And The truth in life is this. If you don't feel worthy of what you receive, you're never able to give it back. And so for five months, I knew my friend was dying in the hospital bed. I I never went to see him. And it it breaks my heart to this day to share that fact with you. You know what, John? I I didn't I thought he was going to come out. I I know he was in the hospital for a long time. And that's why I didn't visit. I thought that I would see him again. I thought that he would make his way out of the hospital. Mm. Did you? Man, I. It seems like he was slumping downward. And, and when you listen between the breaths that Joe Buck was sharing with everybody back in the day, it was clear, just if you really listen, that he was, uh, he was not trending in the right direction. Mm-hmm. And, and more than that, even if he's going to get out, Randy, Jack thought I was going to get out. But he visited me every day. My mom and dad knew I was going to get out, but they were with me every single day. I think it, uh, for me in my position, I wish I had gone down there and visited him, even if he was to get out, because that – it was my opportunity to let him know all that he had done for me. John, I know in your book, In Awe, to kind of continue the story, that you speak about skipping Jack Buck's funeral and how that had an impact on you. Can you share that story with us? Yeah, Michelle, that's another brutal one. So thank you for bringing up the, the two biggest uh, <laughs> bruises in that book. But they're, they're beautiful, I think, because so many of us have stories like this, like mistakes we make. And then you get to decide, should I be buried by this stupid thing I did for the rest of my life or... Should I use this as an excuse to move in a better direction? And and in this case, the Buck family called and asked if I would go out to the funeral. You know, can you imagine all the things they had going on? And so the answer, of course, is yes. So at age 24, I put on the nicest $49 suit that I have, and I grab one of my dad's ties and dress myself up, hop into my old beat-down Jeep, drive out to this beautiful Presbyterian church, and I'm fixing my tie, Michelle, in the mirror, you know, looking right up behind the wheel of the car, and then I look to my left, and I see Dan Deardorff. So Deardorff is getting out of this beautiful car to my left, and I look in my mirror again, and the ownership group for the St. Louis Cardinals is now walking past. And then I realize, well, I'm not alone. So I start looking around this parking lot, and it is the who's who of St. Louis media, of St. Louis sport, and, and national sports. Man, everybody is coming for this event to pay homage to this amazing, really once-in-a-generational type guy, Jack Buck. And I look around these guys, and again, Randy and Michelle, I realize I'm, I'm a face. I'm a fake. I don't belong. If I wasn't there during the end of his life, why should I be there for him right now? So I made another mistake, Michelle. I, I put the keys back in the ignition. I turned the thing back on, and then I reversed out of that parking lot. I drove about three miles down the street before I pulled over and had one of the ugliest cries of my career. You know, like 
a good dog food commercial will get me. You know, like I'm easily moved. But this was this was when you lose you you use the right sleeve and then you got to use the left sleeve too. And it, it it was ugly for about an hour. And then eventually I realized, like, damn, I'm, I'm not going to be defined by the mistakes I made going forward. I can either choose to be buried by it or choose to start living for him. And I made a U-turn. I uh, wasn't able to see the funeral, but just past that church was my grandma and grandpa's house. And for the first time since being the grandson, I stopped by unannounced. I've been in their home a thousand times, but never without calling first, never without being invited first. And when I rang the doorbell and they both came to the door, you would have thought Publishers Clearinghouse had just walked in with a check for $11 million. So they were overcome with joy. The following day, I took my mom and dad off for dinner. I shared two sets of words that I may, may have never said with them. The first were these, thank you. I never really thanked them for what they did for me in the hospital. I never really thanked them for giving up five months, every hour of their life to be with me and the guidance they provided afterwards. So I said, thank you. And then I said, I love you guys. Like you're my heroes. And I don't tell you that enough. And I'm sorry. There there were words I never told Jack Buck. So then I wrote a letter to his wife, to his wife, Carol, and I brought her out to lunch. And so Carol Buck and I connect now and I'm telling her what a lousy friend I was and what an amazing husband he was. And, Again, it's breaking my heart, but it's causing her to cry, not out of sorrow, but out of joy. It's like Jack's alive again, and she was grateful for that. And then I took the great Joe Buck out to coffee at Starbucks, and I read him a five-page letter that I wrote his dad. So the letter begins, Dear Jack, and then it goes on from there to tell Jack Buck what an amazing man he was, what a lousy friend I am, but I'm going to try to make amends for this for the rest of my life. So I read this a lot in a Starbucks and, you know, I'm crying. Joe's emotional, hand him the letter. It's a beautiful day. Move on in life, man. I, I start sharing the story of what Jack did, not for what I got out of it, but to encourage people to be Jack Bucks for others. Like we can all do little things for other people and have a profound impact. That's the lesson of Jack Buck. You don't need to be a Hall of Famer. You just need to show up. You need to have a little bit of courage. You need to recognize that love still matters. And that's what Jack taught me. And final bit of this little story is, when I and my wife, Beth, had our first child, we named him after someone we hope he becomes like. And his name is not John. His name is not Randy or Michelle. His <laughs> name is Jack. His name is Jack. And, you know, the, the balls that Jack gave me now reside in little Jack's room. And I hope he doesn't sell them on eBay. And I hope he doesn't show his friends how great he is. I hope when my little Jack sees those baseballs, he's reminded of what greatness is. And it, it's humble service. It's uh, the kind of guy who would raise his hand and go off to fight in the European theater, which Jack did. It's learning the lessons from the depression, which Jack did. It's recognizing the importance of being generous, even if you're busy, which Jack certainly did. And so, uh, man, I, I was blessed by Jack Buck. I made the mistake of not trying to be kind back to him. But I've tried for the last 15 years to make amends for that. The great John O'Leary is with us on 101 ESPN. And, John, one more thing. The name of the book, In Awe, Rediscover Your Childlike Wonder to Unleash Inspiration, Meaning, and Joy. And a lot of the things that you've just said in the last five minutes are things that I think are applicable to right now with the pandemic. Obviously, the book was written before all of this started. But do you think there is a connection there that that there are lessons that you've learned that you've shared with us here in the last few minutes that people could apply, especially right now in the here and now? So, Randy, I wrote this book when the market was at an all-time high and unemployment was at an all-time low. So that's those were the headwinds I was writing this book into. And even with that, 94% of news stories when I was writing this book were negative. This is before COVID-19. Not only that, but more than half of us feel as if we were doing life by ourselves. This is before COVID-19 forced us to do life by ourselves. 
2018, 1.5 million Americans attempted suicide. So during a period of prosperity, many of us felt isolation, many of us felt despair. And so I wrote this book saying, people, we don't need to be like this. There is a better, higher way to move forward. There's a pathway of hope. There's a pathway of optimism. You can utilize a little bit of faith. You can make your life about something bigger than yourself. And in doing so, joy begins to begins to proliferate within your heart, within your life. Prosperity comes into your life, I believe, in, in the way that you pour yourself into those around you. So I wrote this book in 2018, 2019, but man, I think it's more needed now than ever before. John O'Leary, you're the man. We appreciate you taking some time with us. Good luck with the book, and hopefully we can do this again soon because your message is necessary. Randy, it's great to hear your voice in the morning. Uh, and Michelle, you're you're delightful always. And uh, guys, if you want to learn more about the book, go to readinaw.com, and uh, you'll learn everything about the book there. And I'm looking forward to journeying forward with you guys. So, Randy, Michelle, thank you for this time. Thanks, John. John O'Leary, once again, you can get the book In Awe at readinawe.com. That would be the best way, but it is available at Amazon as well from John O'Leary. He's terrific, isn't he? He is, and he's donating all profits from pre-sold books for the first week of sales to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Missouri. So if you needed another reason after hearing his wonderful message to pre-order the book, all the pro- the proceeds go to a great cause. Coming up on Carriker and Smallman, it's time to wake up or snooze. Freeze Pops is with us, and he's got some questions coming our way next on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. All right, time to play a little wake up or snooze here on 101 ESPN. And Freeze Pops is with us, and he's got the questions. How are you doing this morning? Randy, I, I know you said that that was one of your favorite guests of all time, but I didn't realize it was going to make me cry the entire time. So thank you for that. Really appreciate it. Always good to get a good cry in in the morning. I, I love John O'Leary, and this is something that also applies to Last Dance. One of the things that I have a great deal of difficulty with is living in the moment. And John talked about that, and Phil Jackson lives that with mm-hmm. his Zen attitude. I wish I could do a better job of living in the moment. You know why they call it the present, Randy? Why? Because it's a gift. Oh. You can't get the past back, and you can't predict the future. The present is a gift. Do you guys do a good job of living in the moment? Sometimes. Mm-hmm. it's. I think it's difficult a lot of times for people because you're always projecting forward. You have goals. You're looking ahead at your week. Mm-hmm. You're making the list of things you have to do. And a lot of times you get stuck in your daily routine and it becomes monotonous and you're just thinking about what you need to do today to get to the next day. So it is difficult. I find that when I'm on vacation, I really live in the moment and get to just kind of savor my life. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way. How about you, Freeze Pops? I think the pandemic has kind of forced me to live a lot more in the moment. You know, personally, I've had people in my in my family lose their jobs. I've known people that have been affected by this really, really seriously in, in the health way. So uh, it's really forced me to kind of take a step back and live day to day, not to take it so serious. No, but that's good. That that's kind of where I'm at um, in the in living day to day, being at home, being quarantined. Um, work trying to do the show every day it's uh it's definitely given me a chance to take a step back and i think listening to john sort of like brought that home for me absolutely Um, one of my quarantine activities i was telling randy during the break was that i'm taking an online class at yale there's a class called the science of well-being and it's the most popular class in yale history and when the 
everything got shut down and the stay-at-home orders were enacted, Yale released the class online for free, and over 2 million people signed up. And basically what it is is it identifies why so many of us, and specifically so many Americans, are unhappy and how we can reverse course and bring happiness and contentment and gratitude into our lives. And um, it was is really interesting to listen to John and the things that he preaches and take this class and then hear Freeze Pop say this because I feel like when this pandemic happened, so many things that we did on a day-to-day basis were stripped away and what really matters kind of was brought into focus. You know, a lot of people have a lot of anxiety about their health and about losing their jobs and about the state of the world. It's been a really, really dark time, but I think a lot of people also took the approach of, I wake up every day, Am I healthy? Is my family healthy? Are we all together? Like the the important and, impo- be, thankful and be thankful for that. And you know, I really hope that once everything gets back moving and shaking, that we do kind of take that approach. Amen. All right, let's get into some questions. <laughs> yeah, what just happened? <laughs> Honestly, gratitude Friday here on Character and Smallman. There you go. So, guys, it was a sad week for the world naked bike ride <laughs> in Portland, go. Oregon, as organizers announced that the event will not go on as scheduled in 2020. However, they did encourage riders to celebrate on their own, saying riders should ride wherever they'd like, whenever they like. A naked bike race is something you would be considering at some point in your life. <laughs> Wake up or snooze. Randy, you're the bike rider. Why don't I'm, you yeah, go first? I'm, I'm going to snooze on that. I have had some extremely enjoyable bike rides. The Five Borough Ride in New York. Mm-hmm. I, I've uh, done Bike the Ride in Chicago. Uh, my plan this year actually was to, they've got a tour of the monuments around Washington, D.C., but that one got canceled too. Naked bike ride is not something that I would be up for. It seems like it might be rather uncomfortable. Yes, it does. <laughs> and we have one here in St. Louis. We but, do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you're snoozing? Yeah, I'm going to snooze on that, baby. <laughs> you know, I'm going to snooze as well. I appreciate people that participate in a naked bike ride. I'm sure it's very freeing. You're getting your mm-hmm. exercise in. I don't. Is it considered fully naked if you are wearing a mask? Because I hope they are following <laughs> protocols. That's true. And being safe in that way. Um, but yeah, for me, I just I I envision something where there's pictures taken, and I really wouldn't want that to be happening. So I'll just keep that in the privacy of my own home. Speaking of Oregon, the state has announced that large gatherings will remain banned through the end of September. University of Oregon has three home games scheduled for September. Oregon State also has three home games for September. Of all the major sports trying to navigate the pandemic, college football is going to look the most different in 2020. Wake up or snooze. Mm. I'm going to snooze on that one because I do think that Hey, the, the Southeastern Conference is going to allow fans in. Now, not all the schools are going to do it. We talked mm-hmm. yesterday about Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. But when you get down to Alabama, when you get down to South Carolina, they're going to have fans in the stands. So I, I think it's going to be baseball because they're – and really basketball and hockey too, pro basketball and hockey because of the fact that it's starting earlier and you aren't going to have you certainly aren't going to have fans in the stands at the beginning. I'm going to snooze as well for the same reasons. I think when you look at baseball and you're having to realign everything and completely shorten your season and kind of deconstruct and reconstruct what you think it's going to look like, that is going to be a lot different than college football who is probably going to have the same type of schedule and whatnot. But I will say I will wake up on this question for this fact. I think more than any other sport 
environment matters in college football, whether it's the tailgating, the student section, the bands, things like that. I think for those schools that don't have fans in the stands, that's going to be a very jarring thing. So for Oregon State, it won't be much of a deal. (laughs) It'll be more of the same. (laughs) NFL Competition Committee Chairman Rich McKay told SiriusXM that the league will no longer have reviews for pass interference calls. Thus, the one-year trial run of this was a failure on every level. The NFL is making a mistake getting rid of this rule. Wake up or snooze. Actually, I'm going to snooze on this because they have no interest in applying the rule. There's no reason to have the rule if you have no interest in, as a league in having the rule. And it wasn't, was never applied. It was so, well, uh, let me say this. Whenever a coach would call for a pass interference mm-hmm. challenge, it was always clearly pass interference, and they'd say it wasn't. Right. So why bother with it if you're, if you're not going to do it right? It's just embarrassing for the league. Well, I'm going to wake up because I do think they should enact it correctly. And I do think reviews should be available for moments like that. Well, there's a team that went to the Super Bowl because of a call. And if the league doesn't care about the Rams winding up in the Super Bowl because of a call, if if that doesn't bother them, it's on them. That was such a bad call. It was horrible. Or a bad non-call, I should say. Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson are all over primetime NFL schedule for 2020, but a notable outlier is Deshaun Watson, who only makes three appearances in these windows, one of which is on Thanksgiving. We need more Deshaun Watson in primetime. Wake up or snooze? I'm going to snooze on that. No, Yeah, I am, uh, because <laughs> they don't have DeAndre Hopkins. They've got Bill O'Brien as their head coach. Right. They have ugly jerseys. J.J. Mm-hmm. Watt's going to get hurt. He always does. Mm-hmm. I don't need to see more of the Texans. Yeah, I'm snoozing on that for that same reason. While I would love to see more Deshaun Watson in primetime, that means I have to see more of the Texans, and I'm not really interested in that. No. That we'll see sense. them on national TV when they lose their playoff game. <laughs> their singular playoff game. <laughs> Annual tradition like no other. <laughs> Guys, we'll close it out with this one. Yesterday we talked about the $1 million offer for Mike Tyson to get back in the boxing ring. And today we have a $20 million offer for Tyson from the Bare Knuckle Fighting Championship. With all the money that's being thrown around, one way or another, we are going to see Mike Tyson box again. Wake up or snooze. I'm waking up on this one. It seems like the uh, the check is going up and up and up. At some point, they're going to hit that magic number, and he's going to say, you know what, why not? Don King's daughter took $350 million of his money, allegedly. So money that he doesn't have in his pocket. Yeah, twenty million sitting on the table. You go in and beat somebody up with a bare knuckle. Somebody's got got to fight you too. Right. Yeah. If I'm Mike Tyson, uh, I'm going to take it. And yes, I'm going to wake up that we are going to see him boxing with bare knuckles, (laughs) and he's going to hurt somebody badly. Badly, Randy. Would you do it for twenty million dollars? Yes, I would. Yesterday we talked about a million dollars. This 20, is different. Twenty million is a lot different. Yeah, it is. I think I'd let him hit me. Thanks, Freeze Pops. For Twenty million dollars, guys. <laughs> Michelle with the comment on the end there. I mean, for real, twenty million dollars <laughs> is a lot of money. Hey, coming up next, we've got our fresh take and uh, real refreshing guy, Adam Wainwright. We'll talk about what he's doing next on 101 ESPN. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.